Let's pray. God, first of all, I want to thank you for the little ones who are in here with us this morning. I'm thankful that we have the opportunity to bring along tomorrow's church, uh, that they will eventually someday, as you uh, finish the work that you are beginning in them, that they will be, instead of our boys and girls, they'll be our blood-bought brothers and sisters in Christ. Thankful that we'll have the opportunity to spend eternity with them, worshiping, enjoying you. Thankful that we have the little stewardship over a few minutes to bring them alongside, especially our littlest ones who are in with us today. God, I pray the Holy Spirit will speak even to little tiny hearts this morning and the big ones in between. God, also this morning, I want to lift up another church and another pastor. I want to pray for Authentic Life Fellowship and uh, Jimmy Vaughn. Lord, I want to thank you for Jimmy's ministry and uh, for the ministry of this church uh, here in our community. Lord, I want to pray for faithfulness uh, in this people. I want to pray that they will be equipped week by week and uh, that they will be salty, bright, and aromatic. God, I pray that Jimmy has brothers that come alongside him that will help him worship and watch his back and hold him accountable as he leads and serves. Lord, I pray his ministry, first and foremost, is directed at home and that his family doesn't get leftovers, but they get your best and his best. God, I pray for great things through authentic life. I pray that you would guard them, that you would guard us, that you would guard other churches in our community from a spirit of competition, that we would truly want your greatness through these ministries, and that as a result, Greenville and the surrounding area would be a city on a hill. God, we turn these next few minutes over to you. I'm thankful and privileged, humbled, um, marveling at the, uh, the riches that we have in our time and our age in this place that we live in the gospel. In Christ's name we pray, amen. <clears throat> I want to make a brief uh, additional comment. Um, can you turn those lights down for me back there? A brief comment. I, I shared something with you last week, a charge to our shepherds to consider 2015 being a, a good time to finish out the Hebrews chapter with David, Samuel, Samson, the prophets, uh, studying in 2015 uh, in homes, what faith looked like in these lives. Uh, I want to encourage you. I had someone contact me this week and say, man, I want to do that. How? Where do I start? And there might be some shepherds in here that are feeling like, I, I would like to do that as well, but don't really don't know where to start. Well, let me encourage you in this. Your work begins now. If you want to serve your family with exposing that in 2015, you begin to work on that now. And a great resource to begin with would be Living by the Book by Howard Hendricks. I don't know of a better, simpler, um, better written book to teach you how to study and expose God's Word than Howard Hendricks' Living by the Book. If I could only have three books, four books, I would only have four. If I could only have four books in my library, it would be the Bible, obviously. It would be Pilgrim's Progress. It would be um, The Peacemakers by Ken Sandy. Great book. And Howard Hendricks, Living by the Book. It is, it is a wonderful place to begin. If you haven't read that, you haven't, uh, he teaches you how to observe, interpret, and apply. Observe, 
interpret and apply. So that's a great place to begin. Maybe over the course of the next uh, few weeks, I'll send out some emails and some thoughts here and there to kind of help you along as you prepare for 2015, launching off into uh, those remaining faith heroes that we didn't look at together as a church family. <clears throat> this is translated from an Argent Argentinian newspaper. So it's going to be a little choppy, but it's a pretty cool story. Cool kind of as it might connect to our context, sadly. Chilean Tomas Martinez, 67 years old, disappeared from the places he used to visit. The markets of Santa Cruz de la Sierra, where he did odd jobs. The pubs of Nueva Feria, where he would get drunk with the coins he received. The bridges of the Bolivian city, where he slept. Through detectives and lawyers, his relatives and dozens of friends seek him, as well as the police. He thinks it's because of the hot checks he signed in 1977 when his downfall began. But he's wrong. He inherited $6 million and he doesn't know it. This gift from heaven came on behalf of his ex-wife, Ines Olivares. They got married 40 years ago and separated after a few months, but the divorce was never processed. Neither of them had any children. While they lived together in Santiago, Chile, they were a middle-class couple. She died of solitude. <laughs> Again, it's translated. She died of solitude, I guess in solitude, in 1997. But a few years before, she had inherited the fortune. Three weeks ago, his two brothers hired two attorneys who assigned the task to find him to a private detective, Julio Alfredo Murillo Valdez. You can tell I have no Spanish skills at all. And an ex-cop from Bolivia, I guess we don't know his name, who formed a special search team with other ex-cops. The description of Tomas Martinez was published in the newspaper. 165 centimeters tall, chubby, gray hair, a burn near his left ear, a mole on his chin, white skin with acne marks, big nose, thick and reddish. <laughs> Since then, more than 200 people said they've seen him or know about his death. According to some, he lives in Brazil. According to others, he lives in Peru. Some say he died in a street fight and ended up in a mass grave. Nothing could be proved. The street vendors and the beggars who knew him in Santa Cruz de la Sierra only agreed in that the Chilean, that's what they called him, is addicted to alcohol and cocaine. Last week, the detective came to the bar that the beggar visits often in Nueva Feria, a popular food and clothing market. He missed him by an inch. While the detective asked for him, Martinez sneaked out. He not only ignores that he is rich, he doesn't know he can now return to Chile where the charges for check fraud have expired. From the many stories I've read about unclaimed inheritance, inheritances, this is still quoting the, the article, Thomas's story has to be one of the saddest of all. It's not just that a regular guy with a good and comfortable life is missing on a few years of wealth, but that a man who has nothing and is living in misery has lost the chance of transform, transforming his life for his lack of knowledge. One article that I read summarized his situation as this, this sentence. He is a new millionaire, paradoxically not knowing his fortune. The reason I share this story is because this story might be you. We're going to come back to Thomas later on in the morning, but he sadly might be you. So keep Thomas in the back of your mind.
as we climb into Hebrews chapter 11, finishing up with the last two verses in the chapter. We've been spending the summer, really, unpacking the heroes of Hebrews chapter 11. It's been a wonderful summer considering each of these people. We've left some for the home study, but the chapter ends with these two verses, beginning in verse 39 and 40. And all these, though commended for their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. These two verses are a nice summary of the chapter, and they provide a nice transition into chapter 12. It's going to be likely February or March by the time we get to chapter 12, and I'll explain at the end of the morning what we'll be doing between now and then. In some ways, though, these two verses, they tie together the ancient heroes of Hebrews 11 and the audience of the Hebrew church. They weave them together on one storyline. I don't know how many times I've thrown up this scrawled timeline here on the wall behind me. It's something that I want you to understand and see and envision, visualize even, that we are on the storyline with these ancient heroes. I share this often with my fifth and sixth graders on Wednesday nights, drawing this timeline over and over and over again, and CF is on the storyline because I want them to see it's the best thing that ever happened to your faith and your reading of the scripture and your understanding of where you are and what you're doing is to realize you're in and on the storyline. That's what these two verses do with the Hebrews church. He escorts them in and says, you're on here. What we're going to do in these next few minutes is we're going to unpack these two verses in three pieces, beginning in verse 39, and then the first half of verse 40, and then the second half of verse 40. So let's begin. All of these, though commended for their faith, did not receive what was promised. From Abel to the prophets, beginning with the first hero mentioned in chapter 11 to the final heroes that are mentioned, the prophets, Though they're commended by being named in the chapter, they did not receive what was promised. Now, there are little micro-examples, little particular promises that they did receive. For example, Gideon is promised victory. For example, Sarah is promised that she's going to have a son. For example, Joshua actually saw the wall fall as promised. David was promised that he was going to be made king, and sure enough, that came true. But what was promised here, this phrase, is speaking of something special, something significant. It's referenced in verse 13. Let's look at that together in Hebrews 11. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. This something promised, this what was promised, is the same thing that's referred to here in verse 13 as the things promised. It sounds plural there and singular elsewhere, and I'm going to show you how those fit together in a moment. But these Old Testament heroes, they greeted these things that he's writing about right now from afar. They did not experience them firsthand. They lived and died in prospect of what was promised. And though it hadn't come yet, hadn't come real to them just yet, 
They lived as if it had. That's what faith was for them. They lived as if these promises that we're going to be considering here in a moment had become real to them. The promise of it alone was enough to compel them to press on perpendicular to the world. Perpendicular to the world. Walking by faith and not by sight. Hoping in and for things unseen. Look at verse 40, the first section there. First phrase, God provided something better for us. If you've been paying attention over the course of our study in Hebrews, you realize we have considered this word better over and over and over again. If I could summarize the book in one word, it would be the word better. We're doing that with our fifth and sixth graders. We're summarizing a book with a word, and that would be the word for Hebrews, the word better, because the Hebrews church is considering bailing on Christianity and going back to Judaism. And the point of the book is, what you have in Jesus is better. Let's look at just a few of those very briefly. Flip over a few pages in chapter 7, verse 19. The law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. In Christ, we have a better hope. Look at chapter 8. Verse 6, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it's enacted on better promises. In Christ, we have a better hope. In Christ, we have better promises. Look at chapter 9, verse 23. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. In Christ, we have a better sacrifice. Look at chapter 10, verse 34. Chapter 10, verse 34. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. In Christ, we have a better hope. In Christ, we have better promises. In Christ, we have a better sacrifice. In Christ, we have a better and abiding possession. And look at chapter 11, verse 35. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they may rise again to a better, the word there in Greek is, resurrection. In Christ, we have a better hope. In Christ, we have better promises. In Christ, we have a better sacrifice. In Christ, we have a better and abiding possession. In Christ, we have a better life and better resurrection. And here's really the best one of all. Look back at chapter 7, verse 22. Chapter 7, verse 22 gets at the essence of what was achieved through this better high priest. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. In Christ, we have all these betters, and ultimately in him, we have a better covenant. I think in the 11 years that that I've been here, I've preached 
the same sermon, maybe two different occasions, I preached it two Sundays in a row. I can't remember where the first one was. It was back in John years and years ago, but the second one was in March. I preached a sermon twice in a row, just hitting it from two different directions. The first sermon was part of the Better series, the Better High Priest series. We have a better covenant. And the second one, the title of it was, Did You See That? Some of you may remember that. Some of you may have been paying attention and go, oh, we just did this. It's deja vu all over again. That was by design, and that was on purpose, because in Christ we have this better covenant. And some of the things that we drew out in that better covenant sermon, I'm just going to share with you three of them briefly, because they're so good. So in some ways, I almost get to preach it a third time. Listen to this. The three wonderful treasures of this new covenant that we are walking in, that we are living under. The laws are written on their minds and written on their hearts, as opposed to stone tablets. The heart of stone is turned to a heart of flesh, and the laws are written on the heart. That's one. Second, full knowledge from the least to the greatest. The least of these will know him, and through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, they will interact and engage and enjoy God. The least to the greatest. You don't have to go see a high priest anymore. The least of you, the littlest of the little wee kids in here, have access to the high king of heaven through this new covenant. That's some wonderful, seriously wonderful good news. The third beauty of this covenant, this new covenant, is mercy toward iniquity and amnesia toward their sin. Now, amnesia is something that happens to you, but this is self-imposed amnesia where God says, I will remember their sins no more. We are talking about forgiveness forevermore under this new covenant. No need for a new sacrifice. I preached the first of those two sermons that I preached twice, you know, two Sundays in a row. The day after we buried Billy Vaughn, some of you may remember these comments in regards to that third point. We said goodbye to our oldest brother, Billy, yesterday. We worshiped yesterday considering the wonder of the gospel lived out in this man's life. When I consider that someone could sin so terribly and yet find forgiveness so completely, I have to worship. Billy, you don't have to come back here every day and offer another sacrifice for your sin. Billy, you don't have to come back here next year on another day of atonement. You have been forgiven forever more under this new covenant. Your sin has been separated as far as the east is from the west. He has separated his sin from you. Oh, Billy Vaughn, you don't need to come back here every month, every year. You don't need new sacrifices for that sacrifice that you are worshiping under and in this new covenant was and is durable. Amen? Man, that's the sacrifice that we live under in the new covenant that we live in. A durable sacrifice. There's no expiration date on what Christ accomplished. The blessings don't decay. So come on in here, Billy, my son. Come into my presence. Remember those comments? You Remember those notes? I don't know if there was a more important sermon that I've ever had the chance to preach that I preached twice in a row if you want to hear them. If you don't recall them, I would encourage you to go back and hear them. 
These betters that we have that I just mentioned here in Hebrews, they add together to these betters that our Old Testament heroes and Old Testament saints did not have and did not experience, but yet we enjoy and we live under. And what's that something better? That something better in the singular sense is Christ and his work taken as a whole. He is the something better that they pined for. All of these things, all of these betters were accomplished through Christ. And they're the things that all of these Old Testament Testament saints did not have access to. That God provided for us, according to the passage. Now, us in that passage is clearly the Hebrews church. But the beauty is, that us in that passage is also you. Because we are in the same age redemptively in, in terms of the storyline as the Hebrews church. We're 2,000 year newer context and certainly speaking different languages, wearing different clothes, but we are in company with them as the us that are enjoying all of these betters. Man, that Hebrew church was made of the same stuff that we're made of here in the year 2000. And the thing that strikes me, the thing that hits me, is the reality that we can live life parallel to these sort of realities. I've done it for most of my life. For most of my life, before being here in Greenville, before plowing through John and plowing through Hebrews, for me, Sunday morning sermons were interesting I enjoyed them. I learned some good things, but they ran parallel to Ben McGraw's life. They didn't intersect Ben McGraw's life. They didn't fuel how to figure out how to be married. They didn't intersect with my Tuesday. They didn't intersect with my context. They were interesting, and I enjoyed them. But these betters, frankly, I didn't really have a clue what these betters were then. But I do now, and I'm realizing the us in the Hebrews church and the us in Crosspoint Fellowship is to, our worship is when we intersect with these sort of realities. Because the reality is we can be millionaires hiding from the blessings of these somethings better. We can be millionaires running from the blessings of this something better. I'm imagining what life must have been like. I don't know that even Thomas is even still around, this Tomas I read about. But I can imagine what life would be like for a homeless dude. A good day might be that you sleep dry and warm. A good day might be that somebody throws you a few coins so that you can get some of your favorite drink. A good day may be that you're not robbed or beaten up. But man, I'm thinking of this story that we are, can potentially be like Thomas if these unbelievable realities don't connect to our little daily issues. We can be about just trying to find a warm place to sleep relative to the good, something better that we have in Christ. Our versions of what Thomas might experience, our marital issues, our money issues, our health issues, those are all there. They're near and present issues like Thomas must experience on the street, a a warm place to sleep, a dry place to sleep. But relative, the good news that we have in Christ is like Thomas not knowing he's a millionaire 
if those things don't intersect. What we have in Christ is better than a warm place to sleep. What we have in Christ is better than an ark. What we have in Christ is better than a big, huge, massive wall around a city that you need to destroy, falling. What we have in Christ is better than Exodus from Egypt. All those things must have been phenomenal. But what he's saying here is what we have and what Christ has accomplished is better than all of those things. And yet we can live like Thomas, running from them, oblivious to them even. Where the sum and total of our life is where we're going to dry, where we're going to sleep dry. Sum and total of our life can be what am I going to eat tomorrow? What am I going to get to drink? Not realizing in this something better, we are millionaires. Let's continue on with the second part of verse 40. God provided something better for us so that it's. A henna clause there. I share henna clauses often. They are purpose clauses. They, they can be translated that as they are in this case, and they're sort of lost in there, but they're better translated so that or in order that. God provided something better for us. That's the Hebrews church, and that's us. God provided something better for us so that, apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Through no fault of their own, these Old Testament Hebrew heroes, they could only hope for the something better that we now enjoy. God provided something better with us in mind. And that something better that we've considered just now, the work of Christ, is tied by a henna clause to the realization that they should not achieve perfection without us. These all we're waiting on us all. And only in company with us, the church, will they reach perfection. I only have a few satellites for you to turn to today, and this is the first of the couple. Turn to Matthew chapter 20. As I was reading this and thinking about these Old Testament saints sort of sitting around waiting on us, and these Old Testament saints plowing forward to what we might call payday, and you'll understand why I use that phrase here in a moment. This parable just sounded familiar to me. And I'm going to read it because I think it puts in perspective what's really going on here. Matthew chapter 20, verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give to you. So they went, going out again about the sixth hour, and about the ninth hour he did the same, well on into the day. Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one's hired us. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers, pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour, near the end of the day, each of them received a denarius. 
Now, when those hired first came, they thought they're going to get more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us, who've, been bo- who've borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first will be last. I'm thinking of how this story is unfolding for these Old Testament saints. Man, they showed up early on in the day in the scorching heat in the middle of the day, and they're getting the job done, and we show up at the 11th hour, but nobody gets paid until we all get paid. And quitting time, for us, is an hour into the work. Everybody enjoys quitting time at the same time, and everybody gets paid the same wages. These all Working in the scorching heat, we're waiting on us. And only in company with us, the church that showed up at 11 o'clock, 11 p.m., the 11th hour. I forget how they did those days. They know they, that 11th hour would be late in the day. That without us, they won't reach perfection. Without us, they won't experience quitting time. Without us, they won't even get paid. That it connects to this phrase that they will not be made perfect. What, is this, what does perfect mean here? Perfection, we can know, is the totality of the work of Jesus Christ. His birth, life, death, and resurrection. His high, high priestly work mediating a better covenant. All these betters that we considered in these last few minutes. That is perfection. And from that perfection comes our perfection. Perfection here involves the accomplishment of an absolute and decisive purging of sin once and forevermore. And the consequences of that is that believers are now consecrated and set apart for the work of worship and enjoying and obeying and serving their God. What a remarkable age we live in. Perfection here means that we don't enjoy some thin sliver of the salvation experience. Perfection here means that while we're still here on earth, we enjoy the fullness of the blessing of access to a holy God right now. It's as if heaven is here for us now, this side of what Christ has accomplished in this new covenant. perfecting of the Old Testament saints and heroes depended on the sacrificial life and death of Jesus. And now and only now that Christ has done that, these saints enjoy what we enjoy now. It was 2,000 years ago that Abraham enjoyed what we enjoy now, even though Abraham lived 4,000 years ago. For 2,000 years, there's somehow, I don't know what kind of limbo he was in or what kind of situation he was in. He was not enjoying the free access that we have to God right now. But now they, with us, enjoy full access and a righteous standing before a holy God. 
We don't have to look for a crack in the floor to hide like Isaiah. We don't have to stay away from Mount Sinai or we touch it and drop dead like the nation of Israel. We don't have to be stuffed in the cleft of rock so that God's white-hot holiness doesn't consume us like Moses. We won't drop dead like Uzzah if we touch the ark because we have full and complete and whole access. We can step boldly into his presence. There's no appointment necessary. There's no ominous Lord of the Rings big iron door from the least of us, the wee little kids, from the lowliest of us, we have access to the high king of heaven. What a remarkable time we live in. There's three observations I'll share with you. First is that we live in the time these folks pined for. We live in the time these folks pined for. The Old Testament saints from the beginning were looking for this something better that we've considered together this morning. From the very first people mentioned in our Bible, they're looking for this something better. Genesis chapter 4 verse 1 says, Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Now let me tell you something. In the original Hebrew, with the help is not in the Hebrew. Some of you might have a study Bible or something that has a little note to that effect. I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. That's not what it says in the original Hebrew. What it says in the original Hebrew is, in fact, I have gotten a man, the Lord. Or it could be phrased, I have gotten the Lord man, the God man. What's going on in this passage that's lost in our translation is that apparently Eve thought that Cain would be the answer to their eviction from the garden. He's going to be the God-man that writes this wrong. From our very first mom and dad, they're looking for this something better. And what a heartbreaker for her it must have been when she's thinking the one who would crush the serpent's head would be her firstborn, when instead he crushes Abel's head. Man, all humanity has experienced that bad news until Galatians 4, 4 says, in the fullness of time, God sent his son. How many moms and dads were looking for the God-man? How many faithful Old Testament saints were looking for the God-man? We're looking for the day and age that we live in, not looking for him anymore, now enjoying him, experiencing him right now. But the heartbreaker is, man, we can live like Thomas. Tomas. What millions? Just give me a dry place to sleep. Many, since the very beginning of the age, pined for something better to reconcile the separation from our Creator. They pined for the God-man, for the perfect man to come make it right and to perfect and redeem creature to his Creator. The other place I want you to turn this morning, the only other place really, no, the second of three, is to Luke chapter 10. I want you to see this passage. What a wonderful, wonderful reality. 
I want to share with you as you're turning to that passage, I, some weeks I struggle with Satan leading up to Sunday more than others. And this week I've struggled with the notion, the thought that, man, people really don't care about this. That people will just languish in miserable marriages, languish with a bad doctor's report, languish in money issues, languish in depression, in all these other things that we all experience with these wonderful realities of this remarkable age that we live in, merry connecting. And that's what he's been beating me up with. Goodness gracious, I hope he's wrong. Look at Luke chapter 10. It begins with Jesus sending out the 72. In verse 9, he's telling them, here's the message you're going to share. Heal the sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Okay, that's context. Look at verse 17. The 72 go out, they return with joy. They're out there preaching. They're out there bearing the good news. They come back joyful. They have a joyful report. Look at verse 19. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. That's the context. Authority and joy. A joyful context and lots of authority. Dominion is what they have as he sends them out. Look at verse 20. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And then in verse 21, in that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. This is a context of joy. That's what's going on here, joy and dominion. Now look at verse 23. Turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see, and they didn't see it. And to hear what you hear, and they didn't hear it because they greeted it from afar. That's what this is talking about. What a joyful time you live in, we live in, because we don't greet it from afar anymore. We see it right here. Right here. We're millionaires. And we can be completely oblivious to this. Whatever. I cannot tell you how many times I have the thought of people being in a crisis of some sort. And they're like, I don't got nothing. And I'm like, did you hear what we considered Sunday? I'm like, oh, what? Yeah, I was there. Because it's running parallel. There are folks, as I was standing back here in the back this morning, there are folks that I was thinking, oh my goodness, there are some people I wish were here this morning to hear this because they have these issues in their life. They're looking for a dry place to sleep. They're looking for some coinage so they can get something to eat or something to drink, just make them feel better. And there's some particular faces I wanted to see here this morning because I wanted to say, you're a millionaire. What a remarkable age you live in. And yet your sum total of your life is just looking for a dry place to sleep. Let me encourage you in something. If there's some people that you recognize are not here today that you know are going through a crisis, or maybe it's not even somebody that's part of this church that you know is going through a crisis, bring them a copy of this sermon. Let them know, man, you're a millionaire. Let me give you some good news. To give you a little bit of perspective. If I do that, they say, oh, well, you're just self-serving. You just want, to, you want me to hear what you said. You do it. You know who's missing this morning. You know who's hurting small group shepherds, life group shepherds. You know who's hurting deacons. 
You realize you're being equipped for something this morning? You're being equipped to go engage those people who are hurting or who aren't here who are hurting. Man, what crazy time we live in. Blessed are our eyes that see what we see. He's not just talking about the disciples who are seeing Jesus' ministry with their eyeballs. He's talking about the age that they are in, the age that we are in, where the something better has showed up. Man, what a remarkable time we live in. This something better showed up 2,000 years ago, and the God-man was finally born in poverty and obscurity. And he lived a sinless life, and he reconciled what was lost and broken in the garden. And the perfect high priest made the perfect sacrifice, and those who lived and died without him joined those who live and die now in faith in free and open access to our Creator. What a remarkable time we live in. The other passage I want you to look at is in Galatians 4. I was going to read this to you, and I thought, nah, I want you to see it. I want you to scroll a little line underneath it in your Bible. I want you to put your doily, whatever your bookmark is in there, so you can go back and look at it, your markers. Galatians 4, 4. Uh, it says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, the God-man. The one that Eve thought she gave birth to. The one that countless others looked for. In the fullness of time, he sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, law so that we might receive adoption as sons. You're millionaires. Gracious sakes alive, what a privileged time we live in. What a privileged time we live in. This reality should have motivated them all the more to remain faithful. And it should, it should motivate you all the more to remain faithful. Whatever temptations you face to lure you away, whatever Satan is saying to you to entice you away, what other considerations about how difficult or hard or whatever it might be, seeing this remarkable time that we live in should help you go the distance and stick it out no matter what difficulties are involved in the journey. Realizing this shocking time that we live in should compel you to hold fast. Leaving Christ for Judaism or anything else is like trading your birthright for a bowl of soup. Fifth and sixth graders on Wednesday night had some snacks. We had some bugles. And they, like little kids do, and little fingers are small enough to put the little bugles on their fingers, you know? Little Ava Lane was sitting right across from me. She had them on both hands. I thought she was holding her hand up answering questions. She was just really, what do you do with your hands when you have bugles on them? But we were talking about Jacob and Esau. And when I was sharing with them, what did, what, did, what did Jacob do? He traded his birthright for a bowl of bugles. And they said, oh, wait a minute. They're looking at me. Wait a minute. It was something else, wasn't it? It was a bowl of soup. 
That's just a cute story. It has nothing to do with anything. <laughs> but I'm going to tell you what, man. When you consider trading the remarkable age that we live in, these remarkable betters that we walk in, this something better that we worship, it's like trading your birthright for a bowl of bugles. The Old Testament saints and heroes held fast to a promise. We, though, hold fast to reality. You see the difference? The Old Testament saints and prophets held fast to a shadow. We hold fast to the substance. I'll take my day over theirs any day. Oh, good gracious. Does that compel you to want to worship and enjoy Him more? What a remarkable time we live in. The second observation, second and third are brief. The second is this is a beautiful picture of God's view of community. God plans something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. It struck me how high a view God has of unity and community in this reality. I already knew he has a view of unity in context, that he wants husbands and wives to be like one, that he wants families to be you know, tight, that he wants churches to be like-minded, that he wants Jew and Gentile to break down the walls, you know, to be tight, brothers and sisters. I already had a view of all that kind of stuff. Live with peace with one another. I know he prayed for that in John chapter 17, that we would be one as he and the Father are one. These sorts of things in context make a lot of sense. But what hit me is the reality that he wants unity, not just in context. He wants unity over time. Over 4,000 years, if you go all the way back to Abel, that's even a few thousand more, maybe. He wants unity that they're not going to experience the something better and the blessings of the something better till we show up. We're going to experience it together. He has a mind not only for unity in the body in context, but for unifying the body's experience even over time. Let that hit you for a minute. It's kind of outside the realm of things we typically think about because we think about stuff we can see. But we got to realize time is a creature as well. We're bound to it. We can hardly see anything apart from it. But he's not bound to it. And he's building a people that are and will be timeless. When I prayed at the very beginning that the little wee ones that are sitting right next to you, if the Lord finishes what he's beginning in them and faith continues until they die, that they will not be your son and daughter in heaven. They will be your blood-bought brother and sister. And we'll be up there enjoying, I say up here, we'll be in a new heavens and new earth. Not necessarily vertically. We'll be there with our blood-bought brothers and sisters that we just happen to have stewardship over a little raising them up in the faith. We'll be there with Abel, and Enoch, and Sarah, and Abraham, and Joseph, and Isaac, and Jacob, and Eleazar, the 90-year-old man we read about last week, and a mom and seven sons who were faithful to the end that we considered last week. We'll have good company. God has a view of community, and he wants all of these community to experience this access to him together. I ask you this morning, just under this second point, 
Does your view of community reflect God's view of community? Are you even working at community in context? Are you even working at unity and being engaged to one another and being involved in each other's lives and being known and knowing in our context? Seeing how important it is for him, even over time, to group us together as a people. Does it reflect, does that reality reflect anything in your life where you prioritize community and fellowship? Man, as I'm looking at this passage, I'm feeling the stare of 4,000 years of Old Testament saints looking at me saying, man, you better enjoy community because I've been waiting on you. I've been waiting on you. You better be enjoying each other because we're going to enjoy them together. What a wonderful reality. There's some very practical ways that can play out, small groups and things like that. I encourage you, if you think this faith thing is a go-it-alone sort of thing, you are sadly mistaken, and you're going to have a really sad faith existence if you even go the distance. He's made us for community, not just in context, but in time and storyline. The third thing. This chapter, it's very fitting that we end this chapter with this third point at the end of the very sermon that finishes the chapter. I want to encourage you that this should not leave you feeling defeated or dwarfed by the Hebrews 11 giants. And I put in my notes quotation marks around giants because if you've been paying attention, you realize these people are made of the same frail, feeble human stuff that you're made of. Man, that's, if anything, this chapter's been for me, is this sort of personalized faith for me. How wonderful to see personalized faith. I was realizing as we finished this chapter that this chapter is a small-scale version of another book that's being written. It's called The Book of Life. And should you persevere to the end, your name is written in there with likely some little details. Like these folks have some details according to their story. I thought a fitting way to end our time in this chapter might be consider how this book of life might read. By faith, they endured and persevered in difficult marriages. By faith, they heard a bad report from the doctor, but yet they trusted God. By faith, they grieved the loss of a loved one taken seemingly far too soon. By faith, they fostered little kids. Little homeless kids, fatherless kids. By faith, they adopted kids. By faith, they worked as unto the Lord in tough jobs, even maybe in unfriendly work environments, even maybe ungodly work environments. By faith, they obeyed and honored their parents, even when they thought they knew better than their parents. Kids, did you hear that? Yes. 
by faith. They led their families, equipping their children for life and faith and worship. By faith, they poured their very best effort into every song, into every bulletin, into every email, into every sermon, into every greeting at every door. By faith, they taught the little children and they gave them joyfully their best when they served in children's ministry. By faith, they picked up trash. By faith, they put up fences. By faith, they painted walls. By faith, they balanced the budget. By faith, they changed the light bulb. By faith, they monitored the soundboard and recorded Sunday morning sermons. By faith, they ministered to youth. By faith, they led life groups. By faith, they were part of a life group. And even when they wanted to go it alone, sought to know and be known. By faith, they gave sacrificially to needs and opportunities put in front of them. By faith, they listened to long, long, long sermons. By faith, they considered how they could take Christ into their workplace. By faith, they considered how they could come alongside those taking Christ into the far corners of the field. By faith, they prayed and spent time weekly pouring over needs in and out of the body. And all of these, commended for their faith, received what was promised. Well done, good and faithful servants. Enter into the joy of your maker. Let's pray. God, I pray that you will give, grow, sustain faith in this people. God, I pray that these unbelievable shocking realities of the something better that we have in Christ will intersect with our daily lives, our Tuesdays, our marriages, our workplaces, our inner thoughts and feelings. God, I pray that you would guard us from being a people that just go through the motions. From being a people that just show up on Sundays and come and go with these realities just running parallel to our lives. That's tragic. God, I pray you'll work this in us. pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's distribute the elements. First Peter chapter 1, verse 10 says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. They're looking for something better. Man, they're looking. Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories.
It's a fancy way of saying they're, man, they're pining. Where on earth is the something better? When's it coming? And it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. You. In the things that have now been announced to you, these something betters we consider, through those who preach the good news to you. That was me this morning. That was me. I need some good news preached to you this morning. By the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. People get all caught up in the angels and ah, it's so awesome, angels. Angels are sitting around going, man, I wish I was human. I wish I was a human worshiper being preached to about these awesome things so I could see them. Somehow they don't even have access to the realities that we are enjoying. Do you feel the stare of Abel, Enoch, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph? Gideon, Barak, Jephthah, Samson, do you feel their stare? They're saying, do you know what you have? Man, I feel it. I feel the weight of it. A host of witnesses, a cloud of witnesses, stare me down saying, ooh, you better enjoy that something better. Because, ooh, I pined for it. There are some unseen things that we hope in and some things that we greet from afar, like Christ's return. We don't know when that's going to be. We feel like it's afar. It may not be as far as we think, but we greet it from afar because we don't know when it's coming. There's some things that we hope for and greet from afar, but Jesus' reconciling work isn't one of those things. That's the good news. That's the good news for us. It isn't one of those things for he has already come and he has finished the work. Payday has come. Quitting time has come. No more work, just responding to a full day's wage and showing up at the 11th hour. Payday. And we partake and we drink of it fully now. We don't greet this from afar. We take and eat now. We don't greet it from afar. We take and drink of this reconciling work now. I encourage you all to follow through on what I challenge you in the message. of If you know somebody that is summing total of their life right now, is trying to figure out a dry place to sleep. You understand the metaphor there. You've got some good, you've been equipped this morning to engage them with some good news. View what just happened as you are equipped for something. Not just, if it just terminates on you, then man, what are we doing? <laughs> the apostle, prophet, the teacher, pastor were gifts given to the church to equip the saints for the work of service. That's what you then go do in a few minutes. As you talk about this over, over lunch with families, as you take these sort of realities into your workplace, into your relationships, into your problems, you were equipped for that. And if it doesn't intersect, you missed it. 
I would almost say, you might as well just watch some football or something. And I, I'm, you know, I'm not a football fan, so I'm just saying, it's fruitless. It's waterless springs. It's fruitless trees, if that's what all we do. Let's be real honest. If church is just something for you to just do, you get your check in the block, and you feel better about yourself when you leave, and um, then you missed it. You were equipped for something. So if it's folks that aren't even connected to Crosspoint, if it's people you work with, or if it's people that are connected to Crosspoint, and they're just not here this morning, and you know they're hurting, I charge you, I challenge you, I encourage you. I need this food. What do you think I eat each week? I'm going to tell you right now, I bring it up often, and I'm not going to embarrass Christy because she's not here this morning. She's traveling. She'll listen to it, so I'll just ask forgiveness. <laughs> I am not easy to be married to. Seriously. I can make marriage in our home really, really, really hard. Our kids have a front row seat to that. We have a sense of humor about it because it, we know it's not catastrophic. The sky hasn't fallen. But what do you think fuels me in our marriage and in this difficult work of seeing my own sin, my own selfishness in our marriage? That's where it plays out. I mean, that's the soil of where it plays out for me, one of the places. What do you think fuels me? I, I won't miss a Sunday. If I'm not preaching and we're traveling, I won't miss it because I need it. I need it. I get lost without it. I get, I get like Tomas. I'm out running around looking for a dry place to sleep. But then Sunday reminds me, oh, I'm a millionaire. <laughs> I got, I'll be fine. I'll be okay. I got all these betters. You see what I'm saying? When we came here 11 years ago, Christy and I, and we're connecting to people like Brad Christy and Scott and Lindsay and others that have been here for some period of time, early on we said, hey, let's just not be a church that just gets it done, that just shows up. Now, God can use that too. I trust. But let's not just be a people that just show up and just say, get, that, get our check in the box. Let's be a people that are really asking each other hard questions and trying to walk in what we're hearing. So I encourage you. Man, it's got to intersect. If it doesn't, let's pray. God, we are so thankful for the time we had together this morning, so thankful that we have something so much better, so thankful that we can feel the stare of a few thousand years worth of faithful brothers and sisters looking forward to what we are enjoying. What a wonderful cloud of witnesses that we'll share eternity with. Thankful that you provided this something better and that it can intersect marriages, life, Tuesdays, everything else today. Pray that we'll be that people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Congratulations, y'all. Thank you. Thanks for bringing the... I didn't even...